Well, good morning again, and welcome to Holy Week. I love this time of year. The cherry blossoms, the tulips, Easter, new babies. I think I was telling Steve, I think the Gilheads have the record for quickest to get here with newborn following delivery. So make sure that you meet baby Ezra this morning. Super exciting to have him here. Well, I just recently read a book called The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. I don't know if any of you have read it, but it's the story of um, a young boy named William in Malawi who, um, his father is a farmer, and during the famine in the beginning of the 2000s, he was no longer, they couldn't afford for him to go to school, and so he wasn't able to go. But he discovered after a while that one of the schools in the area had a library where he could still go and check out books. And so he began checking out books, and he quickly became really interested in um, the books on energy and electricity and power. And he found one book um, that taught him how to make a windmill. All of the uh, mechanics and, and physics behind electricity and how to make a windmill. And so the book is the story of William building himself a windmill literally out of scraps that he found in his yard and in the garbage dump down the street. It's an amazing story totally inspiring for me and also just blew my mind as I thought about um, just such tenacity and resilience and like willingness to like fight your way towards something that you want. Um, as I was reading that though it got me thinking about my experience with electricity and I was reminded of <laughs> this is my dad <laughs> my Sophomore year of college, I was living in the dorms and I had an offer of a loft bed. Um, someone was moving out and I had the chance to inherit this bed and I was excited to have it. But in my dorm room, there was a light fixture um, hardwired on the wall exactly where the frame of the bed was going to go. <clears throat> and so I just took it upon myself to rearrange things so that I could make this bed fit in my room. And I was in there, I had a couple of my guy friends who happened to be electrical engineers present helping me with this and you know, I just boldly began unscrewing the fixture from the wall and you know, pulled off the glass dome, unscrewed the fixture and saw you know, the, the wires in there with the cap on them and just jollily you know, began unscrewing that cap and, and there was an explosion <laughs> as, I, as I welded those wires to the wall having not thought at all about turning off the power to that fixture first. Now my dad, you know, was quick to get upset with me, but I was like, I might have shorted out the entire dorm. I survived. There were no lives lost in the creation of this story. So like electricity, that runs through all of our homes that we take for granted. Power is also a fundamental element of the life that all of us live. As with electricity, those who have power are often the ones who take it most for granted and who think about it least. And yet, that does not mean that it is any less important or any less dangerous or any less valuable. For us. So this morning, we are going to talk about the other sort of power, the power that each one of us possess. Um, and we're going to do this by looking at an event that happens towards the end of Jesus' life. Um, 
It happens shortly after the triumphal entry that we celebrate this morning on Palm Sunday that the kids reenacted with the palm fronds coming down. Um, this story is in, is in Luke chapter 20, and um, I'll read it in a moment here, but um, this is an interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders. So these are the powers that be in Jesus' day. So just to kind of set the stage, a few days prior to what we're looking at this morning, um, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem for the Passover. This is the triumphal entry. Jesus comes into town riding on a donkey. There's a parade. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, and immediately after his entering into Jerusalem, Jesus heads to the temple. And when he gets to the temple, he discovers that the place that is supposed to be a worship space for his father has been turned into um, a place of trading. And uh, people have begun making money off of the worshipers that come and have to convert their money to the money of the temple. Um, and Jesus is outraged at what he sees. And so we know the story. He clears the temple, he overturns the tables, and he chases the money changers out. So then when we pick up today, Jesus is again in the temple courts, only this time he is teaching. And it says that he is proclaiming the good news. Now this should take us back to the very beginning of Luke, when Luke is, is in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he's handed the scroll, he opens it up, and, and he basically pronounces that the words of Isaiah have come to pass as he stands there in front of them. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So we have bookends here. To proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And so as Jesus stands here in the temple at the end of his ministry, this is what he again is proclaiming, proclaiming the good news. Well, after this sequence of events, the religious leaders are standing here listening, um, and their response is, who gave you the authority to do the things that you are doing? Who gave you the power to come in here like this, riding into town like a king, who gave you the authority to challenge the powers that be at the temple, overturning the tables and all of these systems that we have put in place? Who gave you the authority to come in here and challenge our teachings? So this is where we're going to pick up reading. So this is a, there's a power play going on here that's been unfolding over days as Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and really that has been unfolding over years as Jesus has engaged with the religious leaders of the time. And so this morning, we're going to look at power. We're going to look at authority and three different realms of authority. So we're going to look at God's authority, our authority that we possess, and then the authorities that are over us. So this is Luke chapter 20. It should be on the screen, and I'm going to be reading starting in verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? And he replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves, and they said, Well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us, because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. And so they answered, We don't know where it was from. 
And Jesus said, well, neither then will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. But then he went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. He rented it to some farmers, and he went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Well, he will come, and he will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Lord, I pray that you would guide us as we reflect this morning on this passage and what it has to say to us about authority. Open our hearts, Lord, to hear places where maybe we need to adjust our perspective on you. Open our hearts um, as we reflect on our relationship to power over us. Lord, I ask that you would soften our hearts to the possibility of change in the way that we think about ourselves as people of authority. Guide us, Lord, and I ask that you would speak through my words to touch the hearts of those who need to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So if we had to identify the moral of this parable, I think it would be safe to say that the moral of the parable is submit to God. Accept God's authority over you. And Jesus lives this out in his life in two chapters from now. And we will see this play out over the course of this week in Holy Week if you come to the Good Friday service. In Luke 22, Jesus is, is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is pleading with the Lord to take this cup from him. He does not want what is about to unfold in his life. And so he's pleading to God to make something else possible. But at the end of that prayer, he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus himself submits to the authority of God. And I think that that is what we are being called to as we read this passage. But this is a hard thing to swallow for many of us. And I think it's hard for two different reasons. And so I want to reflect on these two reasons a little bit here. So the first thing is the end of this parable. (laughs) makes it hard to want to submit. It's hard to consider submitting to someone who has it in them to judge this harshly, right? This is not a safe God that we are being asked to submit to. And so many of us can't abide 
submitting to a God who condemns some people to hell. What do we do with that? Well, what Jesus describes at the end of this parable of the vineyard owner having the sinful tenants killed, I want to suggest is nothing more than a description of the reality that these tenants have already chosen for themselves. Jesus makes it clear in the parable that the owner's desire is simply to be recognized as the owner and given what is his due. He doesn't ask the tenants for everything. He just asks for his portion. He wants to partner with them in the flourishing of the land that is his. But the tenants refuse to partner with him. They want to be in charge. And their power has become for them an idol, more important to them than relationship with the owner. And the reality is that life lived apart from God is a living hell. Life lived apart from God is hell. And I think we see that. We've experienced that in our own lives and seasons where we have lived separate from God. We watch it play out in the world all around us. Life apart from God is worse than death. These tenants are choosing hell on earth. And so the owner simply allows the consequences to play themselves out. It's also true that a world without authority, without consequences, is a sucky world. I was reflecting on it this week. A loving parent disciplines their children, right? And the severity of the transgression dictates the severity of the discipline, right? Your child runs out in the street, your child grabs the handle of a pot on the stove, and you are going to discipline them severely because you need them to understand that you've just about killed yourself, right? Hopefully, the discipline in those sorts of situations is going to be more severe than, for example, when your child kicks a soccer ball and breaks one of your prized plants in your yard or pees on their sibling. <laughs> just for example. Lack of consequences are playing themselves out in horrible ways in the foster care system, in the criminal justice system. Mark and I have you know, been in the foster care system over this last year, and I continue to be engaged in watching Carter and Caleb's journey. And biological parents not being held accountable for their actions, and there not being consequences associated with their poor choices is screwing these kids over. I should curb my language. Kids are hanging in the system year after year after year because there are not appropriate consequences being enforced for poor choices of parents in that system. Teachers in classrooms all over the country are struggling to teach because they have no authority to hold students accountable to certain behaviors. I volunteer in Amelia's classroom, and there's a young boy who spends most of the day crawling around the floor in the classroom, acting like a dog. And there's nothing the teacher can do about it. Authority, when it is loving, and when it's committed to working toward the best 
for individuals in society is authority that is worthy and worth submitting to. And this leads to the second reason why I think it's hard for us to swallow this parable and what it is calling us to, submitting. And that is that I think our perception of authority, our experience of it, has been largely affected and shaped by imperfect human authority. Authority that is often selfishly motivated, that is dysfunctional, and that has been the source of a lot of pain and a lot of suffering in our own lives and the lives of people we love in this world. And so we then begin to view all authority, political leaders, police, teachers, pastors, God, with extreme caution. We test all authority, because if we're not careful, abuse can happen. I think it's okay that we test authority, because the reality is that human authority is fallible. We have a youth group. Do you all know that Sanctuary has a youth group? We don't have a lot of older kids, but we do. And I've been hearing just little bits about our youth group gatherings. And the last time our youth group gathered, Lola, do you remember what you talked about? The last time the youth group got together? Rebellion. It was a gray's house. <laughs> when is it okay to challenge authority? Was the question that they were asking. And I love that our kids were wrestling with that question. And probably as a parent and as a pastor, I should totally not say this, but I think that it is always okay to challenge and to test and to push back against human authority. Kids, press your parents. Question your parents. Because sometimes, not that often, okay? <laughs> not that often, but every once in a while, your parent might be wrong, all right? Sometimes, earthly authorities command things that go against our Christian beliefs. And so we need to challenge that. We need to be critical in our engagement with earthly authority. Sometimes the outcomes of earthly authorities take us in directions that lead to harm. And so we need to be critical in our engagement with earthly authorities. I was thinking back to my youth group experience. And I remember sitting around a campfire as a freshman or sophomore in high school and the pastor had had to leave early. It was an overnight retreat. And so um, two of the parents had stayed and were leading the remainder of the retreat. And there had been a discussion going on. The, I grew up in the military. I was part of the base chapel. And so there was a Protestant youth group and there was a Catholic youth group. And we all shared the same building. And the Catholic youth group in this season didn't have anyone to lead it. And so there had been a conversation about whether or not we could just combine youth groups and do that together. Well, sitting around the campfire that evening, we got a majorly hellfire and brimstone sermon from these parents. And then the next morning, they lined us up all sitting on a wall and gave us an argument for why it was from the devil that we would combine with a Catholic youth group. And at the end of this conversation, they went down and had each one of us vote for whether or not we were willing to combine. These were the authorities, right? These were the parents. 
I went home and I felt ill. I, they persuaded me. I voted, no, we shouldn't combine. And I just went home and I felt sick to my stomach. And in talking with my parents about it, I realized, like, I have to challenge this. This is not right. And so I ended up going to my pastor and explaining what had happened and expressing how I felt about it. And I was one of the only kids who welcomed that youth group in when they came to our youth group meeting a few weeks later. But that was the right thing to do. The authorities in that situation were wrong. There are times when we need to challenge human authority. But I would say we always should do it respectfully, right? There's a difference between challenging and rebellion, all right? We can always do it respectfully. But there is a distinction, I think, between human authority and the authority of God that we are being asked to submit to here. And I want to draw that distinction and help us to see it. Because ultimately with God, at the end of the day, it is always safe to submit to his authority. And the reason it is safe and good and right to submit to God's authority is because God's character is good. And we see God's character revealed to us most fully in Jesus. So we can read through the story of scripture when we feel that we are being asked to submit to God and that is sitting with us poorly we can go to the, the pages of the gospel to see who God reveals himself to be in Jesus. And what we see in Jesus is a God who humbles himself. In Philippians 2, it says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He humbled himself. We see that in his birth. He chose to be born in a stable rather than into a palace. He humbled himself in coming into Jerusalem. Yes, it's a parade, but he came on a donkey. He didn't choose the white stallion. He chose a donkey. And he humbled himself to death, death on a cross. Criminals were killed on crosses. In Jesus, we see someone with authority who invites. He never forces, right? He says, this is who I am come to me. He doesn't force it. We see a God who comes, to be, who comes to serve, not to be served. This week, if you're following along and reading the story, you come to the passage where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. This is the dirtiest job. Only servants washed feet. And yet Jesus gets down on his knees and he washes the disciples' feet. And in Jesus, we see a God who, when he is confronted with sin, rather than condemning, he responds in love. We see this over and over again. When the woman caught in adultery is brought to Jesus, what does Jesus do? Does he throw the first stone? No. He receives her. He loves her. He forgives her. And he sends her back out into the world, a transformed woman. Rather than pulling back, when Jesus encounters sin, he draws near, right? The story of Zacchaeus, a tax collector, despised by his community, up in a tree, just wants to see Jesus walk by. 
Jesus sees him. He comes over. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to have dinner at your house tonight. And rather than rejecting the sinner, he accepts them. He breaks bread with them. He shares a meal with them. And so in Jesus, we have a picture of what divine power, what divine authority looks like. Jesus doesn't give up his power, but he chooses to wield it in a way that looks very much like love. And so we can trust, we can submit to the authority of God because God is this way. God is always loving. God sacrifices himself on our behalf. God rules by serving. And so when we are asked to submit, we are submitting to a God who has given himself for us. I want to shift our focus now to the authority that we possess. So as image bearers of Jesus, we too hold authority. Jesus holds authority over heaven and earth, and as his image bearers, each one of us have also been given authority. Now you might sit there in your seat and be like, I do not have authority. I am not a powerful person. There's a whole lot of people over me, and I'm over no one. I think that we have a misperception when we, when we say that. Each and every one of us has authority in our life. You have authority over the decisions that you make, over the way that you carry yourself in the world, the way that you engage with each and every person that you engage with. You have authority in your relationships with friends, with family. You have authority in your place of work. Each and every one of us are people of authority. And so first of all, it's important that we recognize that we have authority. Because if we don't recognize it, then we're highly, more highly likely to misuse the authority that we do have. We need to recognize that we have authority. And often that happens not because we see it, but because the people around us who know us and love us help us recognize the places where we have authority. Communities like this are important for that, to help us see ourselves clearly for who we really are. And then it's important that once we've owned our own authority, that we're intentional at modeling our authority, not after the authorities we see in the world, but after Christ's authority. That we model our actions, our behaviors, after him. Well, how do we do that? There are practices that we can commit to, disciplines that we can commit to that can help with that. Being here in worship consistently is one of those ways. Having a touch point each and every week where we come and where we are reminded that he is God and I am not. So important to keep our perspective in the right place. Practicing Sabbath is another huge one. If you are like me, you live much of your life thinking that you are in control. Right? The practice of Sabbath reminds us, oh, the world goes on turning when I'm not frantically running. Crazy. The sun rises and sets. 
I'm not in control. Sabbath is an important thing to help us remember that God is in control and to adjust the way that we present ourselves. And then meditating on Jesus, being in the stories of the gospel consistently, often. Coming here in worship, we get this on Sunday mornings, but this isn't enough. If the only time that you are opening the Bible and reading about Jesus is on Sunday mornings, you're not rooted enough in the example that should be shaping your life. Because what we find in the Gospels is what is going to make us people of power who do it in a winsome way. And it's going to be shaping the world as God wants it to be shaped. We need to be reading the stories of Jesus, reflecting on him, meditating on his stories. Um, As I was preparing for this week, Mark handed me a book by Andy Crouch called, um, uh, can you put the quote up on the screen? I don't remember what it's called. Playing God. And in it, he says that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. However, love transfigures power. And absolute love transfigures absolute power. Why are the vast majority of parents not corrupted by their tremendous power? Because they are overtaken by love. So three things to remember from this morning. It is always okay to test earthly authority. Do it respectfully, but press against it. It is always safe to submit to God's authority because God is who we see revealed in Jesus Christ. And then three, as we live out our lives as people of authority, live our lives out with Christ as our example, with his authority as our example. And I think that if we use these guidelines to frame our engagement with power, with authority, then we are on a good road.